Deposit rates have risen at a prodigious clip, and for the first time since the Great Recession, interest rates are rising. But what's good for big banks doesn't necessarily add up for regional and community institutions. How can banks across the board take advantage of a promising second half of 2018? To find out, we'll be talking with Betty Cowell, Senior Advisor with Simon Kutcher and Partners. Welcome to BAI Banking Strategies, where each week we'll focus on the key issues facing financial services leaders. We'll bring you objective opinions and actionable insights that will help you power smart decisions. I'm your host, Lou Carloso, the managing editor at BAI. Come on in. Don't miss our immersive annual event, BAI Beacon, which takes place in Orlando, Florida, October 9th through 11th. It takes a team to transform an organization, and each team member has their own area of expertise that's critical to the effort. At BAI Beacon, you can find the topics most relevant to your individual role and regroup at the end of the day with fresh perspective and ideas. To find out more, visit BAIBeacon.com. Thanks again for tuning into the podcast. It is fantastic to have you here with us, whether you are a first-time listener or a regular. And on the program today, we have Betty Cowell. For the past three years, Betty has served as a senior advisor for Simon Kutcher and Partners in Atlanta. She is also a banking industry veteran with 30 years experience, including in the areas of retail banking, deposits, debit card, and sales service performance. Betty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. Deposits, deposits, deposits. They're growing. What's behind that and who's growing them the most robustly and why? Since the financial crisis, we've seen the banks like Chase, B of A, Wells Fargo, and Citi continue to grow very rapidly. And not because of interest rates offered, but because of their value propositions. One of the things they've been able to do in the last decade because of their scale related to their size is invest in digital technologies. Other banks were doing their best to really keep up with compliance and as a result weren't as able to invest as much in their brands or in their digital technologies. So I think what you're seeing is that the big banks are taking advantage of that now because a lot of the younger folks really value that digital experience and they're further along that learning curve. Plus, young people like to travel a lot and they really value the national franchise and footprints that many of these banks have. So It's not that the other banks haven't grown, but they haven't grown at the same rate that these top four banks have. The market in 2017 grew overall at a 4% clip, but B of A grew at 3.9%, and in the first quarter grew at 4.4%. So they're growing rapidly. Their digital sales are now 25% of their total sales. When I was managing Wachovia's deposits, and this goes back at least 10 years, the industry had gotten to about where digital sales hit about 10% of sales, but never really broke past that much. The fact that B of A is now at 25% of their sales going through their digital channels, to me, that's pretty amazing. And that's up from 16% just two years ago. 
Now, what does this mean for smaller banks, for community banks? What can they do to address the challenges they have in terms of growing deposits? I think it's a great question. I have a hard time seeing, other than a value proposition around rate, how they are going to go compete in the future, right? How they could potentially do it is being highly focused on a specific segment. And I can see this happening more in the private banking wealth and or commercial space than in the retail space per se. Webster Bank, and of course, they're a little bigger than the market I'm talking about here, but they're more of a community bank than they are a regional player. They have a business they got into many years ago in the HSA area. So that's the health savings account area. And they're the biggest health savings account provider in the United States. And it's provided them with a big portfolio of deposits that they can leverage in lots of different ways. It was something, a bet they made a long time ago that they got into, and it's really paid off for them. But other ways community banks, I think, can really make hay is by taking some of the lenders that they have or attracting lenders that have specialties in certain segments and then really developing those segments with their leadership. Some commercial lenders really understand how to make loans to people that want to build senior living space. And they know what tax credits can get incorporated into that. They just really know that space and know how to make those loans. Pulling somebody like that into your organization and letting them go can create both loan and deposit growth. The same thing happens on the private banking side and let's say getting private bankers and or lenders that truly understand the dentist market and how to help dentists go from school to running a practice to being an ongoing concern. That's what I mean by really being hyper-focused in terms of certain segments and going after them in a big way that really pays back quickly as a way to grow. Turning for a second to pricing technology, it seems like it's an especially poignant time to be looking at that issue for banks. A lot of banks have invested in their pricing technology in the last seven to 10 years. I worry a little bit about that pricing technology being based on 10 years of history that really doesn't show a lot of interest rate movement, but that technology should help them compete with the bigger and better rate offers in the market like Ally Bank or American Express. They also have to specialize somewhat, but can't necessarily. And there are a lot of risks in their portfolios. I talked to one bank not too long ago that in their wealth management portfolio lost $200 million from private banking clients because they didn't have a product that was specifically priced to wealth. You know, their speculation was they either went to higher deposit offerings or back into the stock market. Yeah, I think they have more than they've had in terms of tools to compete with in the future, but it's going to be tough. They're right in the middle of that. What threats or opportunities do you see coming from non-financial organizations, especially Amazon, which is offering checking account-like products? 
you know, when we first introduced debit cards was 0%, and then it went to what it is today, which is almost 100%. Everybody uses it. But it took really until from the late 1980s to the 2000s to see that significant penetration of debit card into the card portfolio. So, you know, it's taken a while to see the adoption of deposits at ATMs, deposits at mobile. Now it's happening faster because people are more technology savvy, but consumer adoption is slow in some ways. And you can't replicate the knowledge that the banking industry has created for the last hundreds of years, right? And while things are changing rapidly, and Amazon's certainly been a big changer, offering a banking service is a lot different than what they've tackled so far. I mean, I could see them maybe carving out some payment business, perhaps, but I just don't see them carving out a lot of checking accounts from the banking industry. I'm sure there are those that would disagree with my conclusion, but our brands are trusted and well-known for taking care of your money. And Amazon isn't known for that. So I just think that if they do do it, it wouldn't be like a game changer overnight. From your perch at Simon Kutcher, what do you see as the key issues to look at? I think the near-term issue that I see a lot of people focused on is really making sure their deposit pricing tools are sharp. Um, So a lot of people started investing in pricing tools, I would say like at Wachovia when I was leading deposits 15 years ago, we were just stepping into managing with price elasticity tools and the industry's come a long way since then. But my concern about it is that we don't really know what customers are going to be price sensitive in the future, we've done some testing, we've built these models, we've identified these price sensitive customers and surveys suggest that price sensitive customers are are not really more than 25% of the total market. So it's not all deposits, but it's a good size segment that moves deposits around. So it's something you have to pay attention to. And I think the data, the history is really not robust only because not because the models haven't been built correctly, but because the history that's fed them really haven't shown a lot of elasticity in the customer base. And I worry that customers will become more elastic as the differential between offerings increases. So how many basis points over market rates or over what the average market rate is? Will it take for somebody to all of a sudden take notice and actually switch banks? That's where I see the summer and the fall and (laughs) really the next couple of years where some of the battles will be won or fought or lost, (laughs) so to speak. Absolutely. Betty, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, well, you're quite welcome. Betty Cowell is a senior advisor at Simon Kutcher in Partners based in Atlanta and a longtime banking industry veteran. You can look for Betty on LinkedIn. And here are three key takeaways from today's podcast. Number one, in the growing deposit landscape, the four largest banks, Chase, Bank of America, Citi, and Wells Fargo, have a distinct advantage. 
part of that stems from large national footprints that appeal to millennials who like to travel, for example. Community bankers have a much bigger challenge. One answer, hyper-focus on a particular space, such as loans for senior living spaces, or sectors, which can be as specific as dental students. Number two, as interest rates begin to open up, be sure your deposit pricing tools are sharp. But keep in mind past data may not be as historically robust or 100% relevant as you'd like, given the years of flat interest rate activity. What's more, it'll be difficult to predict customer price sensitivity as a factor in setting strategy for the remainder of the year. And number three, bank brands are known for taking care of your money. Amazon isn't known for that, and that will be a challenge if the company decides to start offering banking products. Cowell imagines Amazon might launch a payments product, but doesn't expect them to get into products such as checking accounts. Whatever they do, it won't be an overnight game changer. And now a word from our sponsor. NTC is an implementer of community outreach programs for banks, credit unions, and government agencies, and an award-winning customer engagement contractor. NTC believes that truly effective community outreach initiatives are those that make an emotional connection with customers, employees, and key stakeholders. Programs include financial literacy, budgeting and saving, securities and fraud, and investor education, and more. Be sure to visit nationaltheater.com to find out more. And now BAI Banking Strategies brings you the aha moment where our podcast guest shines a light on that point in time where realization, revelation, or exploration made all the difference in their financial services career. The performance review can be terrifying or just plain boring, but sometimes a bullseye from a benevolent boss can turn fuzzy focus into laser vision. Here, Betty Cal shares how a true leader at work prepared her for true leadership which also yielded big benefits at home as well as in the workplace. Listen. I used to work for a guy named Stan Kelly at Wachovia Bank, and this was before Wachovia had merged with First Union and now Wells Fargo. Stan was my boss at the time, and he was very well liked, and he was doing my review. Um, of course, covered all the normal stuff, but gave me two specific pieces of input. And one was, Betty, you know, you do a great job presenting to small audiences, to medium audiences, but you're not as effective in front of a lot of people. And I thought about it. I knew exactly what he was talking about. So I knew I needed to address that. And then the second element that he said to me was, Betty, you know what? You've got everything you need to be a successful leader in our organization, but you have to decide that's what you want. I thought about that for a long time. What perception do they have of me then? <laughs> because I always saw myself as a career person, but I was in my early 30s. I was balancing children at home, a husband that had a job full-time too, and a career, and then my job. So perhaps I was feeling a little overwhelmed. I had a young daughter at the time, and so I talked a lot about it with my husband. And really at that point in time, I was earning stock options and bonuses. And he had all those things prior to the move we made. But now working for private hospitals, he didn't have some of those benefits. So he said, honey, we really need to make sure your career takes a lead right now because you're going to make more money ultimately. So we made an economic decision 
And it gave me some freedom, perhaps, to invest more at that point in my career. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. And here are a few reminders from yours truly and your friends at BAI. First of all, if you haven't done so, subscribe to our daily newsletter. It's free to sign up. And be sure to check out our ever-growing archive of podcasts. Also, be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter to stay up to date on BAI's latest and greatest. You can catch me on LinkedIn. Be sure to connect. I'm Lou Carloso, the managing editor at BAI. We'll see you soon. So long.